Hello and welcome to a special Rayo Vallecano episode of the Get Spanish Football News show. Earlier this week, I was joined in Madrid by Paul Reedy, a freelance journalist working in and around Spanish football. Paul's been a supporter of Rayo ever since he moved to the Spanish capital in 2003, and he knows as well as anyone the highs and lows that followers of this unique club can experience. The two of us sat down in the centre of Madrid to discuss, among other things, the controversial presidency of Raul Martín Presa, the art of creative fan protests, and the history of Vallecas during and after the Spanish Civil War. We also explore why many Rayo supporters feel that the club is losing its identity, and ask ourselves what, if anything, can be done to stop that from happening. Uh, so Paul, we're three years away from the centenary at Rayo, which should be a time for celebration, for happiness, for thinking about the future. We're not really thinking in, in happy thoughts just now. There's a great quote that I heard on the radio a couple of weeks ago. Someone from the, the Footballers' Federation um, said, Rayo's situation and the terrible management of the club is a story that repeats itself every year. It's very sad. What is the situation? Why is it repeating itself? Well, that's from Jose Movilla, no? Yeah. And obviously Movilla is a former Rayo player. Um, who knows the inner mechanics, should we say, of the club and is certainly uh, in an authoritative position to give a view. Um, I don't know how long this podcast is expected to last, Tom. Um, so I'll try and keep my points kind of succinct and to the point, and I will really, really endeavour not to sound like a ranting supporter. Um, I think a lot of supporters around the world have grievances with their football clubs, a lot of supporters are maybe not that bothered about who runs the club, um, but certainly for me as a Rio fan who moved here in 2003, it was really the events in 2011 that woke me up as a football fan and certainly um, kind of prodded the Rio fans into like, who actually runs our club? Um, when you say 2011, you mean the acquisition of the club by the current president? Yeah, 2011 basically saw the previous owners, which was the Ruth Mateus family. Um, they were a, a wealthy family from Jerez, who had the, a company called Rumasa. Um, it was, uh, like I said, a couple from, from, from Jerez who were uh, involved in the likes of Galerias Preciados back in the 80s and 90s, which was like a precursor to El Corte Inglés. Um, they had businesses in cherry and chocolate. They were it was one of these kind of like multi multifaceted companies, very successful in the eighties and nineties. Uh, as the turn of the century, less so, and uh, they become became embroiled in financial difficulties uh, around the 2009, 2010, 2011 when it really um, came to fruition, and to the point where they uh, couldn't pay pay the players anymore. They were. Basically, the company had been propped up by a thing called Pagarese, which is in Spain, which is basically IOUs. Mm. Uh, and obviously, you know, an IOU is fine if you've got a sustainable vision to your company, but this, the, 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 all their companies were kind of on their last legs, uh, going into administration, and yeah, huge financial problems. Um, so yeah, the Rio supporters galvanized, woke up basically. It was, this was a kind of a jolt to find out that they're, not just the players weren't being paid. Obviously, players, football players are very well remunerated, mm. but it was the likes of the kit man, the woman who works in the club shop, um, the groundsman, it was the backroom staff who were, who were not being paid, and I think they were the ones who the Rio fans kind of maybe related to a little bit more, rather than the, you know, obviously the... 
the guys at the top, yeah, the, the, the players themselves. Rio is like that as, as, a, as a club, historically. And we'll get into the, the, the culture of the club, but they do look out for people in the community. It's very much about the community. We've seen in the last year with the, the COVID crisis, even some of the top clubs in like English League, Arsenal comes to mind, uh, Liverpool, laying off people that are, that are low down on the ladder. And it's, there may be a murmur of, you know, well, that's maybe not right, kind of thing among the, the fan base of those clubs. But there was no, there were no kind of big massive protest at Rail. That seemed to galvanise a lot of the protest ten years ago. Yeah, um, the guys lowered down the thing. Yeah, I, I think, like I said, they're, they're the ones who really struck home the fact that you know these people on, you know, on, on a very meagre salary, the you know the, the people behind the scenes basically weren't getting paid, mm. and that's when they set up the thing called the Fila Ferro, which was like a kind of like a, basically a, a bank account to, to make money for fans to contribute to pay the wages for these, these sort of backroom staff, if you like. Yeah. When you see the current situation, how, how much worse is it with this new president? It's been 10 years since all those difficulties. We're now in 2021. Is it looking worse from your point of view? And if so, why? Is it looking worse? I think things are worse now, Tom, yeah. I mean, I think things are without a doubt worse now than they were before because there was... There were certainly, in the earlier years, efforts to make a relationship, efforts to establish a link between supporters and, and the club. Um, and over time, that relationship is, is completely di- has been distinguished, extinguished, sorry. And there is zero relationship now between the supporters as a, as a, as a mass unit and the, the presidency. And the supporters are obviously a significant group, but I think what makes this recent crisis so remarkable is the fact that it goes through various layers of the club fans players men and women's football teams the youth team and um, the supporters are a big part of that but they're only a part of it and in order to give this thing a kind of form um, because it is such a there are so many things going on i think a good way to do it would be just to look at uh, how each group is dealing with it what their objections are to the, the current president who is very much the villain of the piece, you would have to say. Even an objective point of view, he's been pretty vilified, yeah. Uh, so Yeah, but I, I just want to reiterate the point to that. I think, I think a lot of supporters around the world have grievances and say, oh, my club's really badly run, and you get Newcastle fans in it, you know. My gosh. It's a disaster. In the club. And there's a lot of similarities in that. You get Blackpool fans previously with the Oyster family would also say, oh, the Oyster family are the worst uh, owners in the world, blah, blah, blah. And that, they, they, that they may be true, but I really defy anybody to canvas world football and find out a club that in the space of 10 years, a club that, as you said before, is is coming up to its anniversary, which should be the most significant um, event in the history of a football club, to find out an owner who has taken what was once a very proud club with a very proud set of fans. I mean, Rio Rio certainly are not involved in talks to form a European Super League. They are a very humble club. Traditionally, a yo-yo club from second division, first division. I mean, they're they're one of these clubs that they're neither a first division or a second division team. They're kind of in between. Um, and I say, with, with with one thing, they do have is a huge sense of pride in the supporters club and in the supporters um, Big. views of yeah, the, and the, the way they see the club. And for an individual to come in and completely uh, chip away at that over ten years. And again, when I I don't I, I can't say whether that was the intention or whether it's just a, a, a result of the situation um, but yeah I mean going back to the to, to the fact that the fact that a set of players issues a communicate stating their 
dissatisfaction with the way the club's been handled and the way that their issues are being dealt with and and singling out in this case David Cobenia who is the sporting director as being inadequate in his role of acting as a fulcrum between uh, presidency and, 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 and player staff yeah um, yeah I mean I'm, I'm unaware naming names like that yeah I mean, I mean that's the thing I'm unaware of any other professional club in, in world football in the first you're talking about obviously major leagues mm. uh, who has who have been forced into such a corner where they where they deem it necessary to issue a statement and a quite a hard hitting statement too it wasn't it wasn't they weren't trying to be nice or trying to be a warm and, a warm and cuddly about it I mean they, they were pretty much saying this is uns- unsustainable this is un- unacceptable um, and we are suffering and obviously you know they, we saw the images of, of, of the players having to push cars yeah. when they were sent to, uh, to Miranda del Ebro to play in the second division game when they all thought this is, this is ludicrous that was one of the you know one of the key I think they feel that there's been a lack of um, care taken over the players over their, yeah. their their safety they were stuck in the bus I believe for five hours yeah. Yeah. you know and they, they ended up having two positive cases there in a game that really shouldn't have been played yeah. the government was saying because of the heavy snowstorms they shouldn't have travelled and they were sent off to, to Miranda yeah. which is a fair distance to travel given the conditions you know and they were forced to do that it was like and then they were dropped at the training ground with nowhere to yeah. no means of getting yeah. home it seems to be a complete lack of respect and if you go back to to before that when we were at the height of of covid april may last year and in may when they were given the green light to train again they, they weren't taken off this ERTE thing yeah. which was like a it would be the equivalent of a furlough yeah, exactly. back home so their their wages had been cut and they were told to go back and train as if they were professionals, but they weren't going to get paid as professionals. Yeah, that's right. You yeah, know, I mean, again, you know, when we try and sort of dissect the whole issue going out of Rio, there just seems to be a lack of caring. And I think, you know, if somebody said to me, sum up Rio Martin Pressa in a word or in a, in, a, in a succinct statement, and it's just a lack of caring. It just doesn't care. It just doesn't care about supporters, obviously, which mm. we've talked about and we'll go on. So uh, he doesn't care about the... Cantera, which is the kind of the youth setup. Yeah. He doesn't care about the people who kind of are instrumental in making the club, uh, you know, successful on a day-to-day basis. Quite does quite clearly doesn't care about simple things like aesthetics, the club logo. I mean, we've seen in, over the years. It just and these are just simple simple things in isolation. But when you put them all together, you see a pattern developing of a degree of abandonment and a degree of just of just. Yeah, not caring. I mean, mm. it's, it's frustrating to, to even start to reflect on, on, the, on the, the sort of misdemeanors on, on, the, on the rap sheet of Ryan Martin Press's tenure at the club. Yeah, um, yeah not caring, I think, is certainly one of the... The best way to sum it up. Well, he's, he's come out and basically said that, the, that this is all a big fuss about nothing. If you, if you go back to the, just the money issue, um, he says that the players have had their wages cut, but only slightly and only in comparison to 2019. Um, it is true that the the wage but uh, the wage budget is the fifth highest wage in in, in that in that second division. Um, it's lower than what it was two seasons ago, but they were they were playing at a higher level two seasons ago. Um, I don't think that's the issue for the players. The issue for the players is being furloughed and then not getting paid on time. And it's not just the first team. This is the case yeah, for it's, it's the case for the Cantera, as you say, the U squad and the women's, the women's team. team. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the the women's team is. is is pretty galling to me. I mean, you had a women's team back in 2007 and eight. I think they won the Copa de la Reina, mm-hmm. played in Europe. And again, over, over time we've seen less investment, uh, less care paid to the women's team. 
Um, just again, once again, we talk about little details, but these little details, when you add them all up, paint a picture of an individual and a regime that simply doesn't care, whereby they wear previous season's kits, the new se- they're, they're, they start off some of the, the, the new season wearing last season's kits, and you, you don't get that at the likes of Atletico Madrid and Barcelona, clubs who are run you know, in, in a professional manner. Um, there was a situation recently, again, once again, the women's team issued a communique, mm. unhappy with, uh, in this case, it was travel conditions during COVID when they were forced to take the eight-hour eight coach to Barcelona. And they, they, they posted pictures on social media of the sandwiches or the, the lunch they were given. And it's basically two, bits of, two dry bits of bread with a bit of ham in between it. And I mean, I wouldn't give my kids uh, for, their, for their school lunch, you know, such a, such a poor packaged um, bit of food. <laughs> I get it, it's this uncaring thing. Well, exactly, and obviously the, 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 some of the women's players uh, are stu- studying, or they're working part-time and things like that, and two or three of them, I believe, had to pay their own flight because they needed to get back to Madrid urgently for other reasons, uh, rather than press a, you know, make arrangements for them to get back urgently. And this was, a, this was for a mid-weekend against Barcelona. Mm. And obviously another communique was issued saying, this is not acceptable, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I mean, and then prior to that, there was a communique from the Rio youth teams, the Cantera teams, the B teams, and the underage teams, basically saying the same thing, that, you know, that their interests are not being catered for, they're not being looked after, as you would expect with a professional structure. I mean, you know, Rio are a, a team that have been in La Primera División for, you know, over the last decade for six, seven years. Mm-hmm. They've dropped back to the second division again. But they're in one of the top five Euro- yeah, European leagues. I mean, you know, this is this is this is the elite of global football, and the club has certainly not been run in an elite manner. No, the fact that independent bodies like the, like the Players Association and and things that really don't they're not they shouldn't in theory be partisan. The fact that a lot of independent bodies have come out and called for the resignation of the president. How significant is that? Do you think? It would be significant if you had a president who felt pressurized by those kind of actions. Um, you have a president who is very, very, very well protected by La Liga. So despite countless communiques, countless uh, independent bodies, you know, casting aspersions on his ability to run, run the football club, at the end of the day, he knows that he has the back of La Liga. Mm. And ultimately, um, he's got the back of La Liga and he's, he's also in charge of a financially viable and successful business that receives when in the top flight you know an injection of 40 million plus euro every year um, obviously less so in the Southern division they, they got 20 million last year with the parachute payments mm-hmm. that'll be 10 million when they're when they're just back in the second division uh, you've got a football club who doesn't invest in the stadium invests limited in in the youth setup um, doesn't pay to buy players. Very rarely will they go into the transfer market and actively sign a player. They go for players who had a contract or go for players on loan deals. Um, so Rio continues to be a source of income for Real Martin Pressa and his uh, the members of the board. So once again, you have to ask the, motiv- the questions about his motivation. Why is he involved in a football club where he's clearly not loved by supporters? He's got issues with his staff, the people who report to him, um, but at the same time he's thick-skinned enough to, to be able to, you know, 
alienate all that background noise, if you like, and is happy to kind of run the business as he sees as he's fit. He's fit yeah. He came out and said that uh, Rao is a perfect example of, of how to manage a football club in terms of uh, finance. That when payments to players and staff have been late, it's been a couple of days here and there, and it's due to the extraordinary circumstances. Is there any truth? I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Is there any truth in any of that? Well, I think I think you need to look at what constitutes the running of a football club. I think there's three pillars that are integral to the success of any football club, and I think it's it's an important for a successful club to get those get those three levels of balance right. You need sporting success. You need to get your get your sporting uh, aspects right. You need to get your finances right. Obviously, football is a business. Nobody runs. Nobody sort of shies away from that. But you also need to get your social responsibility right. And I, I think the, the, if, if, if a perfect football club exists, it will be one that has a kind of like a graphic equaliser level with all three. If you invest more in trying to get more sporting success, success then it may impact your financial um, runnings. And if you put up season ticket prices, then that may affect your social, your social elements. So you, there's a kind of a, uh, like a masterclass of trying to get those three elements right. Um, what I will say is Ron Martin Pressa, to his credit, and this is something that I don't say lightly, is, but, you know, I, I think when we're talking about Rio over the last decade, you know, I try and be as objectively as possible and I try and be the most kind of you know, rational football fan mm. uh, got going. They have had success on the field, nobody can deny that. I mean, they've had five seasons um, in the top flight, which is their longest run in Primera Division ever. They finished eighth one season and would have been in European competition had they not been in administration at the time. Um, has the club been well financially, financially well run? I mean, nobody knows because the whole thing is so opaque. Nobody knows. Um, as of the 22nd of September last year, the clubs had yet to file their financial reports for the season ending 17-18. So, when Real Madrid Presser says that clubs' finances are in... You've got to take them at his word. Well, really, I mean, nobody knows, because there's no transparency. It's, it's completely um, cloak and diagrams. I mean, there is no transparency. The club went into administration. The club were bought with a debt of 44 million euro. Mm-hmm. Real Madrid Presser took the club into administration and renegotiated the debt with the various um, individuals and companies who were owed, owed money. And the play, the payers get played, but obviously paid. But obviously, you're getting an injection of 44 million euro a year on TV money alone. You're also selling players. We sold the likes of um, Barba, um, Alex Moreno. You know, so you're selling players at the same time. So you're, you're getting a cash injection from that. But there's no outgoings that I can see. I mean, there's no money being invested in the stadium. We we are um, leaseholders of the stadium from the Comunidad de Madrid. Who, who famously shut it? Who famously shut it back a couple of seasons ago because it was it was deemed as dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. I mean, games against Atletic and Sevilla had to be cancelled at the start of the season. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, if Real Martin Presa says the finances are are fine, that is his word. Can I pick up on a point that you made about the ninety point six percent of 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 the club yeah. belonging to him? That was also, I think, I'm right in saying that was also the case with the the previous owners. Yeah. Real fans don't have a 
in theory, do they have did they have a problem before twenty eleven with the fact that one guy owned so much and they had such little representation? Does it matter if it's one percent or seven percent really for them? I mean, like I said, before two thousand eleven, I think we all lived in this kind of nirvana. It doesn't really matter who who's in the presidential box. And we had this kind of thing where we go to the football, we, we have our beers beforehand, we watch the game, we're entertained. So we win, lose, we draw, we go home, and we don't ask questions about who's pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it took the financial problems uh, of the Rumasa group to really get to a point where, where for the first time ever, certainly in, in, in Spanish football, fans not just arrive at other clubs too as we see saw the likes of Salamanca and Jerez and Palencia go to the wall where clubs fans ask, ask questions who are running the who's running the club what are they doing what are they spending money on um, why can't we have more of an active say as sort of stakeholders emotional stakeholders if you want of the football club to what's going on in in, in the day to day runnings yeah uh, let's go on to what the fans want because that's as, as we've touched on, fans are the biggest part of, of this club. The fans, the area, the, yeah. the, the people that make it. If you compare the protests that we see at some other clubs this season that we have seen, your Barcelona, Marseille a couple of weeks yeah. ago, Celtic, if you compare, what, or Valencia as well, you compare what these clubs are, are aiming for com- on the pitch compared to what Rio are aiming for, it's very different, isn't it? Yeah. What do fans want from their team on the pitch? What are their expectation levels? I think it's important to also say that when we talk about fans, when we're talking, we're talking about a very general, broad number of people. And I, I think from, from my experience, if you were to dissect the Rio fan group, you've maybe got 30% of the fans who are like the fans in their mentality pre-2011. pre They go to the game, have a beer, watch the game, are entertained, go home. Maybe got another 30% who go to the game and they're kind of, kind of interested in what's going on with the runnings of the club. They would maybe get involved if they felt strongly about things um, and lend their voice to certain, certain issues. And then you've got another 40% who are very much active in wanting to know what's going on with the football club, wanting to know why press is making certain decisions, wanting more transparency. Um, and I would, obviously, I'd be part of that 40%. Um, and what do they want? I mean, there's, there's a kind of a, an idealistic view that Presta sells the shares and Rio becomes a fan-owned club, as we've seen with the likes of say, Portsmouth in their time back in England and back in the day Wickham and things like that. That's not gonna, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be realistic. And I don't think at the moment a supporters group could run the football club because you, you need to have certain expertise to run a high turnover business um, I think what a lot of fans would want at the moment is somebody who cares somebody who cares about the club Tom somebody who gives a shit about what happens on a day to day basis who cares about the the, the the situation in the stadium and the stadium is, is in, in, a, in a hygienic condition where there's running water in the taps where the, where the toilets flush where you can bring your child and not be worried about and I'm obviously talking pre-COVID times here we're just basically, you know, things collapsing and all that. Yeah, no, I, mean, I mean, I remember there was one midweek game whereby there was no lighting in the in the in the stairways, and an old guy in his seventies broke an ankle because he couldn't see. He just, yeah. you know, the fans had their their phones to try and light the light the way down. And this guy broke an ankle. I mean, that's not right. That is not right at a 
you know, if we want to talk about football as a business, any other business in the entertainment industry, whether it be theatre or a cinema, would not offer their day, daily customers those conditions. And I don't think it's acceptable that a football club can play with the emotions of fans because we are, as football fans, different animals to another you know, uh, consumer base. I mean, we can't go and say, okay, that's it, we'll, we'll go and watch Alcorcón or we'll watch Getafe. No, we don't, we don't have that, those, those options. No, it's not a TV series. Completely, no. I mean, and, and, and you know, we're, we're blinded by our, our, our loyalty. And in this case, Raya are very aware of that. And, and a lot of fans will, will put up with miserable conditions, will put up with you know, increases in season ticket prices, um, and a lot of, a lot of the, 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 the crap that comes with the day-to-day match experience at, at Raya, which, which you, know, you can go to the stand and say it's got character, and it's, you know, it's, it's decrepit, and it's, you know, it's got charm. But no, I think when you, when you go there week in, week out, and you want to bring your kids along, are uh, your are your family alone? That you know the the insalubrious and unhygienic conditions basically they start to lose their charm very quickly. And certainly in times of COVID, where the bar is now higher, oh, completely, yeah, you have to have that, yeah. yeah. I think uh, a short term solution to a few, at least the financial issues, could be promotion, which on the field, and amongst all the negativity, Rio are in the playoff positions this year. On the field, they're. They're winning games, difficult games. They're beating Espanyol and they're beating, you know, they really gave Barcelona a game, almost caused an upset there. Would that be a short term solution? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the million dollar question, Tom. I mean, it's amazing how the players have been able to perform and sort of isolate themselves from the, the, the noise that's going on at an institutional level of the club with so much discontent. Um, and if you speak to people within the club to Obviously, they'll say that they're unhappy with the way it's run, but they all point the finger back to the one source of the problem, and it's it's well Mark Impressa. Um, to the point, somebody was saying, and I don't know if this was an anecdotal comment or if it was true. Whereby, if there's if a light bulb needs needs changing, Raul Mark Impressa needs to sign off the form to get that bulb paid for and fixed. And that you can't run a club in that way. You need to delegate. And I think he's, if, if if one comment has constantly been um, held against Presser over the years is his inability to trust people and his inability to delegate. And the fact that the, the, the first team, and, and every credit to uh, Ariola, who's, who's, who's hugely. Um, the manager. The yeah. Manager. And Ariola, who's hugely objective when he speaks and hugely intelligent in his comments. And again, he is having to straddle a very fine line where he is an employee of the club. Uh, he can't rock the boat in the way that Paco Hemmings would have rocked it in, in his time. Um, and at the same time has to motivate his team week in, week out. And as you say, Ryer are in a promotion place at the moment and playing reasonably good football. Going back to the question again, would it be the, the sort of short-term solution? I don't think it would be. Because I think, once again, if the motivation for Real Madrid Presa maintaining his interest in Raya are financial, which for me is, is ultimately his bottom line. I mean, I can't, I can't believe it's any other things because he doesn't seem to want to project the club as an international brand. Um, the club has no English language Twitter or Facebook or that language page on the website. And they're, they're just small details. Once again, we go back to details. And for me, so much of what the problems are at Raya is, is a... Is a a constant adding up of all these little small details which basically basically constitutes a disregard and an abandonment of 
of any interest in, yeah, if you want to talk about the brand again, the brand. I mean, Riot has so much potential on an international level to tap into the, yeah, if you want to call it the football hipsters or that kind of, those, those fans who look for something a little bit different, a bit of, a bit of alternative. Obviously, St. Pauli is the ob- obvious mm. comparison. Um, and we've seen how St. Pauli, after Bayern Munich, outside of Germany, have the biggest merchandising business because of, over years, fans like that kind of, you know, alternative to, to the big global dominating um, forces, forces yeah. of Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's, it's, it's interesting that, like, because this is the thing, a, a couple of years ago you, you appeared in that Copa 90 video and you, you were talking about the, this project that they had in America, which was to try and start, like, yeah. a try and uh, project the Real Vallecano brand in America, which seemed to just be completely, like, the opposite of what, what the fan of what the fans in the club kind of stand for. Real Madrid has had some very strange ideas in his time, but to open a franchise in the USL, which I sorry the NASL as it was at the time, which is the which was the second tier, if you like, of North American soccer. Like the MLS would be the La Liga, and then yeah, I mean, but there's no there's no connection between the leagues. There's no promotion and relegation. So I mean, it's they're like they're like closed franchises. So, but it's the second tier, if you like, in, in if you look at American football as it was, that it was the MLS, NASL, and the USL, which was like the third tier. Um, in Oklahoma, which was not really a, a footballing hotbed, who already had a, a soccer team in, Oak, in Rio, Oak, uh, Rio OKC Energy, to invest three million euro of the club's money in a franchise. Um, was madness, and it lasted for a season. Yeah. Um, ultimately, fell out with the 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 partner in the states, a guy called Sean uh, Sean Jones from Sold Out Productions. Uh, and the relationship got so bad where Sean Jones ripped up two thirds of the of the astroturf of the pitch where they played at the university pitch because he said, "I am two thirds owner here," or whatever the percentage was. So in the dead of the night, he got his people in to take up his percentage of the turf of where they played. So the Riot players turned up, the Riot OKC players turned up the next day at a, at a, at a pitch that was kind of unplayable. Had to play five or six. It was, it was crazy. I mean, it, you know, you just look at it from the outside and you just think, what has prompted this guy to embark on this, this ludicrous venture? Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, you keep coming back to the conclusion that it's his bottom line that's what's in it for him personally, money wise. Once again, I, again, and, and it's difficult to say. It's speculation, and, and one hundred percent speculation on my behalf, not on the behalf of Get Football, Get Spanish <laughs> Football. That I think there was motive, motives from La Liga as a kind of a testing the water to see how a La Liga franchise, albeit through Rio, would work in the United States. Um, and it, it, again, I mean, it, 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 it failed to develop, it lost money, and lasted a year. It was a, a, an, an embarrassing uh, experiment. And I remember at the time too, I mean, I, I was hugely vocal on Twitter about it, saying this is, this is ridiculous, um, this, is, this is doomed to fail. And I got a lot of flack from people in Oklahoma saying, who, who, who are you to try and tell us in Oklahoma how something's going to work in our city? And um, and yeah, and some of those fans have come back over time and said, "Listen, you were so right. We're, you know, we're sorry. We acknowledge that you, you know you were accurate in your in your prophecy." Um, but it did prompt one of, one of our more 
uh, shall we say, ambitious protests at Bayekas, whereby we got in touch with um, the guys from Raya OKC Energy. They were they were like a kind of a green and, and blue, and they shipped us over some flags and scarves <laughs> um, to Bayekas at, at a home game against Athletic Club. About a hundred flags and and. Uh, Scarves for from the OKC, who are the rival team to Rio OKC, if you like the the energy team, um, were brought in and were, were displayed around the, the stadium. And then for the following week, anybody going in with a Rio, sorry, a, a, an OKC energy scarf or banner, it was confiscated by security wow. at the at the entrance and the way into the club. Again, and it's, there's been there's been so many protests over the years. Some of them were a little bit more explicit in the times before the um, the clampdown on La Liga on what was permitted into the ground before before Jimmy uh, the Deportivo fan was yeah. killed a couple of years back. Um, it was pretty much a free for all for supporters and certainly ultra groups to bring in banners displaying all sorts of propaganda, all sorts of messages. Um, a lot of them directed at club owners. A lot of them directed at politicians, and a lot of them, a lot of them, both from you know right wing groups and left wing groups, with sort of you know subliminal political messages. Um, that changed obviously. Then there was a whole clampdown on what was permitted into grounds afterwards. So riot fans had to be more creative in their protests, um, and obviously we had the, the whole mock funeral. I don't know if you remember the yeah. the, the the situation whereby. The area behind the goal was cleared, and some pallbearers brought in a uh, coffin for the death of the soul of modern football. It's just a <laughs> protest against, against games being televised on, on Friday and Monday nights. Um, we've had black black balloons again to celebrate, you know, the death of modern football. And, and yeah, there's been there's been protests on, uh, against Presa, vocal protests, um, banners, um, obviously, you know, the 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 stickers with with the Mickey Mouse ears yeah. you'll see all around by Icas, plenty of graffiti um, so yeah I mean there's been there's been plenty of protests and, and, and one thing one, one thing Rio fans are not shy about is protesting no and they're, they will they will they're one of the most sort of forthcoming groups to make their voices heard does that just go back to the history of the place to like the Civil War does it go back to before that it goes back to the time pretty much when um, I mean by Icas, Basically, it was an area that used to be like well out of the centre of Madrid, but obviously as Madrid has expanded, it's become absorbed into the sort of the, the greater metropolitan area of, of the Spanish capital. But there's certainly a clear break where there's a thing called the Puente de Vallecas, which is a bridge which divides the kind of Retiro barrier, which is a more sort of affluent area, close to the Retiro Park. Um, and then you go to Puente de Vallecas and straight away the, the feeling around changes simply because you see far more political graffiti, you see far more po- uh, po- uh, sorry, post- posters um, displaying the dates and times of forthcoming marches, or forthcoming protests. Um, the graffiti has all got a, a political tilt to it. Um, the area is far more mixed, but there's a, there's a far more uh, visible prominence of, of Latin Americans uh, in the street. Who have been the biggest immigrant group? Exactly, over, over years, themselves along with uh, probably Moroccans and Romanians in Spain, I guess, they, they're, they're the three groups that constitute the biggest amount of immigrants to the country. Um, and over the years, Vallecas is one of these areas, it's never been governed by the, the right wing 
Partido Popular. It's yeah. always been a bastion of resistance, if you like. It's always been associated with PSOE or left-wing um, parties of the time. And back in the, I think it was during the 70s, it was always synonymous with protest against the, the Franco regime. Um, and it was always an area where there was like it was like a, like a pocket of resistance, if you like. Um, which it was in the Civil War too, like uh, the Anthony Beaver's book, The Battle for Spain, he mentions Vallecas yeah. in it that the, the nationalists were so confident that they were going to take Madrid. Yeah. It was a famous line on the Seville radio where a five peseta taxi ride away from the centre. They were so confident they were going to take it, they didn't actually push on Vallecas. Mm. And that gave, that gave the people in Vallecas and the Republicans time to build up a strong force there. And the nationalists, it was a big, big problem. And it kept the road open to Valencia, where the government eventually went. Yeah. So it was a massive headache yeah. during the Civil War, after the Civil War, and we're still living in Spain. Anyone who's, who's lived here or studied it know that we're still living with the consequences of it. Um, and the political culture is largely formed by it. And Vallecas is one of these places that seems kind of frozen in time. You know, yeah. that almost it's like going back there. And it's, I mean, you go to games at the Vallecas Stadium, you see Republican flags, Spanish yeah. Republican yeah. flags. By, by the same um, term, you don't see Spanish flags. Yeah. You don't see the, the you know the constitutional Spanish flag. I mean, again, it's like a little bastion of, of resistance. I mean, it's a very working class neighbourhood, um, and people there, you know, they, they don't have big salaries, they don't have flash cars, um, but they do have a football club that you know is is in, currently in the second division doing well, and and it is one of the things that constitutes the identity of the area. I mean, you constantly see. Um, Bayekanos or people from there, people who have an affiliation from there, constantly writing Bayekas with a K, with a K, with a K. Valle del Cas. They refuse to call even Bayekas in the Spanish. They're like we're Valle del Cas. There's this whole thing about being different to to um, to certainly the rest of Madrid, and, and a lot of people, even local Bayekanos, they still say, "Oh, we're going into Madrid." They don't even see themselves as living in in the capital city. They still see themselves as a little kind of this, you know. Uh, alternative barrio if you like just uh, before we finish like this this kind of talking about the fans I asked you this before and you 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 touched on it football fans in general maybe we are a little bit kind of naive we're probably unrealistic in our expectation and we're definitely romantic is that more the case with Raya Vallecano fans do you think they don't seem to like anything to do with modern football they're going against the grain in so many things is it unrealistic the things that they're demanding for the club? I think what they're demanding, they probably know deep down that it's not realistic. But they're, they, I, think that, I think their mentality is set the bar high and if we get on the first rung of our demands, we'll be happy with that. And the first rung of, of the demands is, is have an owner who, who actually cares about the football club, yeah. who cares about the supporters, um, who cares about the fabric of what Rio represents. Just looking after the simple things that, in the longer run, constitute to kind of a, a solid base, whereby, as you say, you can you can have the fans on side, you can have um, a successful team, and you can have a successful business model. So you're kind of basically ticking all the boxes and keeping everybody happy. It's not that hard, Tom. I do believe that that with the right management and with the right people in place and with the right just just having the desire to do that uh, uh, from the outset, which for me is lacking, and that is the the ultimate problem with Ryo at the moment. His presser doesn't care. He doesn't care about these smaller details. He doesn't care that the women's team are forced to eat two bits of dry bread and a, and a, and a stale piece of ham. Mm. He doesn't care that the um, the underage teams are wearing kits from a season or two ago. 
He doesn't care that the badges are falling off the new season's kits because he hasn't paid enough due diligence to what um, Umbro are supplying in terms of kits. He just doesn't care. And I, and I, I think it's that, that, you know, jigsaw putting together piece, piece by piece of not caring um, constitutes the, the situation where we find ourselves in, where you've got a very, very, very dissatisfied fan base. And me, speaking from a personal point of view, it got to the point where I, was it two seasons ago, um, the, we, we got relegated after our one season back in the top flight. Um, the club d- decided it was the right time to increase the season tickets for children and for disabled supporters. Mm. A lot of the fans said, okay, that's it, we're not going to renew. Um, it was a bit of a standoff between the club and the fans at the time. And I remember hot August evening before the start of the season, there was a meeting held, sort of a spontaneous meeting on the uh, outside the club dressing room. Mm-hmm. And about 150 fans turned up just to hear what the, the platform had to say. And the message was, we've got a meeting tomorrow with the club, we're going to sit down, we're going to put forward our, our, our proposals. Um, and I was thinking, great, this is, this is where the club sees the light of day, sees some common sense. They reach a compromise that everybody's kind of happy with, that nobody's, nobody's completely happy with, but we're all sort of happy to, to move forward with. Um, that meeting ha- uh, took place the following day. The club turned up 60 minutes late for the meeting, sat down with the representatives from the supporters group, um, looked at each point, kind of went no to that, no to that, and no to that. Anything else? And the supporters group were like, no, there, there, there were our, our, our points. And the club said, anything else? The meeting's over. And that for me, that for me was the final nail in the coffin. That night, I'd said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to renew my season ticket. And and that is probably the biggest threat to the fan culture is people like yourself, that that group of like forty percent of people or whatever it was who just feel disillusioned there, yeah. and just feel kind of apathetic towards everything. And it it seems to be a that's one of these things that's very difficult because that has to be an organic thing. That excitement about the club has to be organic. Fans can be a very um, powerful voice when there's unity. And what this, what this has done is, and we're talking about this 40% of the, of the total fan base, it's created a division because you had a point at the beginning of the, the 2019-2020 season whereby Bucaneros and certain groups said, right, we're going to boycott games, we're not going to go. And then there was another group within this 40% who said, but no, we have to, you know, we have to support the team. It's about the team, it's about supporting the, guy, the 11 men on the pitch. So straight away, within this smaller group, you, you create this, this um, the splinter area, whereby some fans had said, okay, that's it, I've had enough, as was my case. And other fans said, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're, we don't know what to do. And it basically, it basically created a degree of uncertainty. And eventually, over time, uh, some of the fans went back, said, we're gonna go back, but we're not gonna make any noise. We'll, we'll, we'll remain silent. And then Paco Hemos was complaining, saying, this is not the way, I guess we know, because we're always synonymous with despite being small in you know, 11,000, 12,000 fans, making more noise than the 81,000 at the Bernabeu, who've always been um, notorious for the, for the generation of, of noise and, and fanfare. Um, so what, what, what Martin Bresson has managed to do is create this huge division within this the kind of the, the, the detracting small group of fans that were, were, were in existence already. Um, and and that still exists, obviously, then the pandemic came along, the whole thing is kind of um, on hold, if you like, at the moment. And but it, what, it, what it does do is makes you question why, why you're a, a football fan. Why do you dedicate 
your emotion, your time, your match day, you know, you, you go into the game. It made me reflect on why I have dedicated all this time. Why do I travel five hours on the ca- in the car on my own to Benidorm for a playoff game in Segunda B? And yeah, I mean, it, it throws up more questions than answers. Um, but we're all a bit mad, aren't we? We are all a bit mad, Tom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and and but that's the thing. But we all but we all we all do have a tipping point. Yeah. And and I certainly reached mine after the, after hearing about that meeting. I thought that that's it. That, that guy does not deserve my two hundred twenty euro season ticket money. Um, and, and and that for me was 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 the, was the thing that kind of. Yeah, it was pretty much the, the nail in the coffin in the, in the divorce that I feel emotionally with Rio. I still obviously, you know, I'm still watching them on the TV and I still, I still get a buzz of seeing them score a goal. But the love that I had for the club in, you know, in my uh, time since moving here in 2003 is, is, is diluted. Uh, and it's diluted because of, because of one individual and his, and his regime. Yeah, and it, it's, it's a conclusion. It's, it's normally with, with these things, it's... There's an entire board of directors, for example, that are the problem. There's a certain culture in the club that's started by various people. But if you get into the Barcelona saga, for example, there seems to be all sorts of issues to do with various people who have sat on the board for years. I'm always reluctant to, to signal out a boogeyman in any of these things or, you know, a bad, you know, to, for it to be one person because it's almost always not the case but it does really seem to be the case that this is the, the work of kind of one guy yeah and just going back I mean I know that you've asked questions and I have rambled and, and I eventually try and answer the question within, within that ramble you asked the question earlier on would, would promotion back to the top flight be the answer yeah and this is the saddest thing for me as a Rio fan to say I see it the other way the only thing that would help Rayo Martin Pesce leave the club is if the financial incentive dries up and if Rayo got demoted and yeah, relegated right. again to Segunda B whereby there is no money in Segunda B really no, no, no you know, substantial amount of, 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 of income but it's, it's, it's very much this dilemma at the moment because obviously I want Rayo to do well but deep down I know it's got to go the other way that it has to go the other way before things get better um, and that's, that's, this, that's this kind of dichotomy that we live with at the moment certainly I, I, I as a Rio supporter I'm constantly faced with but that's not a niche view you think do you think that like it's probably widely held by certain people maybe people don't want to say it but yeah I, I, think, I think a lot of people would, would be very remiss to, to admit that and they wouldn't want to go on the record and say that you know I'd like to see Rio fail to improve and I'm not saying I want to see Rio fail because that sounds like you want to build the wall or something? No, not, not, at, not at all. Of course not. No, um, but I want to see them. I just want to see the club run in a. In a, in a and, and again, sounds so simple, so simple. I want to see the, the club run better. Tom is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And and for Raul Martin Bresa to maybe be a little bit more humble and maybe a little bit more try and re-engage with supporters and and kind of say, okay, we've got things wrong in the past, and just put things in place. I mean, again, once again, and I've used certain kind of. Maybe people may feel as mundane examples to show a lack of interest and a lack of um, caring. You've obviously been suffering a pandemic now for just short of a year, and in that time, the face mask has become part of our lives. I'm wearing one right now. You're wearing one right now. I've got mine in my pocket, <laughs> and I'm right beside a window. Um, we've seen how clubs across the world have launched face masks. It's another uh, another element of of supporter mer- mer- uh, merchandising. And it becomes it becomes it's now synonymous with it with the, the the shirt or the scarf or the mug or whatever you want to see. Ryle have no 
face masks. And I've seen lower league clubs in Spain and in England and around the world with their own face masks. Yesterday, for example, my kid played uh, against AD Esperanza, who play in Preferente, which is like the sixth tier, and they have their own face masks available in the club bar for sale. And Raya, which we go back to again, is one of, a professional club in one of the biggest leagues in the world, haven't got a face mask. And okay, you may say that that sounds so, so what? But it kind of, at the same time, it's, that is the crux of the problem, that there is just no desire to, to engage, to, to, to see opportunities, to, to offer fans what they want or to, to extend the brand or whatever you want to call it in, in marketing spiel. But for me, it's just a disregard for disregard for your what you represent, and 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 the football club that's about to celebrate hundred years is a disregard for that ninety-seven years of 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 history. I think. Yeah, that's it. Uh, last question: When were the the good old days? Would you say that's the, that's a that's a million-dollar question? You started supporting Rail in the. My yeah, in the mid nineties, I, I moved to I came to Madrid for a weekend um, as part of a football tour, playing against the Spanish team at the time, and a friend of mine who lived here, again, this is, we're talking pre pre internet, and my knowledge of Spanish or Madrid football was Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid. I wasn't even aware there were other other teams who existed. This friend of mine explained to me about Rayo and the the culture of the club and what they represented and, and, and the kit. I mean, the kit was one of the things that really caught my eye. And that, that weekend in Madrid, I was in El Corte Inglés and I, it, was, it was May time, so it was the end of the previous season. And I saw the Rayo sh- shirt on sale for, I can't remember how many potatoes it was at the time. So I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the shirt. And on the flight back to London on the Monday, on the, sorry, on the Sunday night, uh, four of us for a bizarre reason we missed the flight back and basically it was the last flight returning to to the English capital and the, the guy from Iberia said okay we have to wait and fly back in the morning at seven in the morning and we were like Christ we've, we've no money what, what are we going to do it was like well, we'll just, let's just hang around Madrid for the night and we were like well, I have no fresh clothes I said I'll put on that shirt I bought the Rio shirt so I put the shirt on we got the cab back into the centre straight away the taxi driver goes hey Rio fan Rio fan and I was like and I didn't speak great Spanish at the time, but I knew he was singling out the shirt. So we went back in and we started into the centre of Madrid and we went from bar to bar. And every bar we went into, people were commenting on this foreign guy wearing a Rayo shirt in the mid-90s, which you know, was just was like alien at the time. And, and to the point where people were buying us drinks and getting ordering us food because there was a foreigner wearing a Rayo shirt. And, and you, you start to think, hey, this shirt has got an aura about it. What, what, what's, what's, what's causing it? So yeah, that was that was my kind of first sort of sort of vision into the world of you know what Rio can you know the magic of Rio, if you like. And then obviously subsequent trips back to Madrid, I went to go and see them and got to know them and moved over, got the season ticket. And um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> when was it good? Oh, when was it good? It was peak. It was good. It's always been good, Tom. It's, it's, it's always been good. It was even good in Segunda B. I mean, I moved to Madrid in 2003. And that coincided with the club getting uh, relegated from Primera to Segunda. The following season, I was like the kiss of death. They got relegated from Segunda to Segunda B. Spent four seasons in Segunda B. And they were good seasons. I mean, they, they, were, they were, you know, I was kind of you know, going to a lot of games. I was getting to know Madrid really well because we were playing 
the likes of San Sebastián Colón Reyes, Naval Carnero, Alcorcón when they were in Segunda B, playing uh, Real Madrid Castilla. Fue en La Brada down there at that time as well. Fue en La Brada, went to Fue La Brada when it was just a one-sided ground. Uh, Alcalá de Henares, um, and then the teams from Galicia and from the Canary Islands. And they were they were really good. I mean, they, and and you know there was five thousand people in in the stand. But they were they were like the 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 Rio diehards. They were like the 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 real die in the wool Rio fans who would go to games home and away. So I got to know a lot of people, really good people who I still am friends with. Uh, and that's one of the things when we talk about my sort of feel like separation from the club is all those acquaintances that I've gotten to know from the match day. They disappeared from my life, and that's that's quite sad to 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 to, to have gotten to know all these really good people. We still stay in touch with the odd message, and there's the odd um, anti-presser kind of the latest kind of instalment. Um, when it was good, it was good in the Primera. It was very good the night against Granada when um, uh, Raúl Tamudo scored that goal in the 93rd minute. I was probably as good as it get as it got as a Rio fan. Um, I mean that that. Those memories are just yeah. You know, people say, "What what are your best memories in your life?" I mean, without without getting too sort of nostalgic or romantic about it, that night will 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 live with me forever. Sort of like the kind of Paul Dickov Gillingham goal for Manchester City. That yeah, kind of. very much so. I mean, we we needed to to win to not get relegated. Um, playing Granada, who were also battling to say to to stay up, and. In a night where nothing was going our way, packed by acres, it was again probably the month of May or June, so it was really hot. Um, Raúl Tomoto popped up to head home, quite good, quite quite considerable distance offside, as you, <laughs> as you will see from 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 watching it again. And um, and the place erupted. It was the 93rd, 94th minute, um, and the, uh, you know the, the final whistle sounded. Everybody was on the pitch. And yeah, I was, I was out to like three or four in the morning that night with Rio fans. And it was just, it was just a, a constant celebration. Everybody went to the Assemblia de la Fuente, which is the congregation point for Rio fans. And it was, yeah, it was a fantastic, fantastic memory. Um, and there's been, there's been good, night, good nights too. I mean, we being Atletico Madrid, going to the Bernabeu, um, making more noise. The 2,000 Rio fans than the 82,000 fans at, at the um, at the Santiago Bernabeu, which a lot of people. Say that's not very hard to do anyway. No. Um, and yeah, and just and just seeing you know, seeing obviously Diego Costa play for Rio, seeing Michi play for Rio, seeing Sal Niguez play for Rio um, over the years, and and for me, getting to know some really, really, really genuinely nice people, um, and looking forward to the kickoff on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, or Saturday evening, whenever it would be, and that would be one of the key key sort of parts of your week you look forward to, you know. Um, and then obviously having having two kids and bringing them sort of bringing them up, dragging them up onto <laughs> Rio when they were totally disinterested as four year olds. Um, so yeah, it's played it's played a huge role in in my life in Madrid, and it's kind of uh, yeah, it's kind of become synonymous with me as a football fan because I became for a long time this kind of this kind of random foreigner who tweeted in English about Rio, and uh, you know a lot of people would contact and reach out to me and who want to come to, to see a game, how to get a ticket, and you find yourself being this kind of, you know... Community. Yeah, which is, which, is, which is nice in a way too. I mean, and everybody, I mean, that's the thing about Twitter. When Twitter works, it can be a wonderful tool to bring people together. So I've never had a bad experience from guys from the States or from Finland or from the, the UK coming over 
who've latched onto Raya for the right reasons. Um, and even though, like, so say, Robbie, Robbie Dunn, who wrote the book on Raya a few years ago, Robbie Robbie Dunn, too, it was through Twitter where Robbie got in touch with me. Robbie eventually moved to Madrid, but I could put Robbie in touch with a lot of people on Twitter. Again, this is, you know, the, the good side of Twitter that people don't necessarily always focus on. I think it's, it's I, we always focus on the negatives of Twitter, which, of course, there, are, I, yeah. there are plenty of those by all, by all, by all shadow, uh, by all measures. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a weird time, Tom, whereby, you know, in my life in Madrid, I've had this, you know, Rio has been such an instrumental instrumental part of me as a person, I guess. And at the moment, it's kind of on hold, and I hope it comes back, but I really don't know. I think it will come back. I think it will come back, and we'll we'll have days like that. And it's just it's a. Uh, in the future, anyone coming here, don't go to the Renault, don't go to... Like, no, I'd, 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 I'd still encourage people to go to Rio, but at the moment, I mean, my, my, my position is clear. I mean, at, at the moment, whilst Real Madrid Presser continues to hold fans with the level of content that he does, then I've made my mind up that I will not go to a home game and give him a single cent of my money. I think that's a perfectly bittersweet note to, to finish on. I think it sums up the situation very well. Thank you so much for coming. You need to come back because we, we didn't even talk about half the things that we could have spoken no. <laughs> about. And, uh, but yeah, we, we need to have you back because the situation will change, hopefully for the better. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, the only thing I'll just, just to end on, Tom, is um, the one thing that it has done is it's had kind of opened another door to another subculture, if you like, of Spanish football. And that's the whole, the whole concept of el fútbol popular, which is fan-run football, I guess. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a thriving um, supporter run as a um, model of football, which, which certainly continues at a lower league level, so going to be to Therif and down. And um, what I do find myself doing is, is going to a lot of games with Club Deportivo Independiente de Vallecas, which is a club that's been formed by, yeah, I guess, dissatisfied Rio fans who've formed this new club. It's been in existence for two years now. And quite similar to the FC United in Manchester. Very similar, very similar to that. Um, obviously, playing at the seventh tier of Spanish football, so I mean, you know, the, the level of football is very, very low. But the 300, 400, 500 fans that go there on a match day make a hell of a lot of noise, and it's a lot of fun. You can drink, you can bring a beer. There's um, the kickoffs are always twelve o'clock. There's no, <laughs> they're not being dictated to by, by television audiences in China or Singapore or or the United States. And yeah, it's it's an it's an alternative. It's it's something that I found myself latching into. And there's yeah, there's clubs like Unionistas and the, the Salamanca who are currently riding high in Segunda B and famously played Real Madrid in, in the Spanish Cup last season, who are sort of flying the flag, if you like, for this this kind of yeah, more of a uh, you know um, a fair supporter run model where the fan is very much the fulcrum and the, and the, and the motor of the, of the running of the football club. But again, that's probably a separate podcast in its own right, and we can we can uh, meet up at some point again and, and get deeper into that. 100%. Yeah. Always welcome, yeah. Great. Thanks a lot, Paul. Okay. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed that chat with Paul Reedy about Raya Vallecano, be sure to visit us at getfootballnewsspain.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with what's going on in Spanish football. We'll be posting more episodes similar to this one over the next few months, as well as our usual weekly roundups, so your support is always appreciated. Thanks for joining us as always, and we'll see you again soon. Adios.